I'm so excited to be with you today. Last week, we finished our summer-long series, Summer of Love, looking at 1 John, and that was, that was so good. And uh, next week, we have Ivan Tate is going to be here with us. So that's going to be great. He'll be here in the morning, and then he'll be with us on a Sunday evening, 6 p.m. Uh, churches, like, there's churches that meet on Sunday evenings. Did you know that? Like, God is here on Sunday evening, and he is. It's amazing. Now I know. Uh, but it's going to be so much fun next week. Make sure you're here for that. The week after that, we're going to be kicking off our fall sermon series in here. So today, what I want to do is something kind of fun, for me at least, and that is I want to do a kind of a one-off message here today. And I want to teach from one of my very favorite Bible stories. It's one of my favorite stories of all time. And, um, and I was just kind of looking back through my notes, and I realized I've taught on this before, but it was 16 years ago. 16 years, so some of you old timers here, you'll like be like, oh, I remember the last time we talked about this. Um, and I'm like, man, 16 years is a long time. Like I've changed a lot in 16 years. The last time I taught on this story, I was in my 30s. I'm 52 now. And so like I've changed, I've grown hopefully a little bit. And uh, so yeah, I was like looking at the story and it just like had all this new meaning. You ever like look at a story that you've known your whole life? But it, it like, it's like the, as you change, the story changes. And you're like, oh, wow, I see things a whole lot different. So anyway, this is going to be fun. It's out of 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings, you can go there if you like. This is the story of Naaman. 2 Kings chapter 5, we're starting in verse 1. Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. That's an interesting phrase there. Now Aram, just because I know you already know this because, you know, you're an expert uh, as in uh, ancient geography. But uh, just in case, for those of you who aren't, for the person sitting beside you, here's where Aram is. Aram uh, in ancient Israel, this is a time, this is about 150 years after the reign of David. So Judah and Israel have already split apart. Israel's on the north, Judah's down south. And then you got Aram up there. And Aram is kind of in this on-again, off-again war with Israel just all the time. And so Naaman, he's a general for for Aram. He's not, he's a foreigner. He's not a Jew. He's a Syrian general. It's modern day kind of Syria. Um, he's considered this great man uh, with the person that he works for, which is the king of Aram. And it uses this phrase, great man. Um, in the Hebrew language, that phrase is ish gadol, ish gadol. And uh, ish is the Hebrew word for man. You see it back in the beginning of Genesis when it talks about the man, uh, ish. Uh, a woman is isha. And um, so, but what kind of man? He's an ish, but what kind of man? He's an ish gadol. Let me hear you say gadol. You got to say it with like some, mm, because gadol means great and significant, like mighty, right? This is like the Thor of Aram, right? He's, he's the big guy. He's an ish gadol. Um, my good friend Peter, is Peter, there he is. Whenever I see my friend Peter, Right? I give him a big hail and hearty ish gadol. Because Peter is a great man, though he is incredibly humble and he'll tell you so. He is an ish gadol, right? And so we, we greet each other that way. Um, so Naaman, he's the ish gadol. He, it's, a, it's a title of rare honor and respect, right? Significance. He's got some street creds, ish gadol. So he was a valiant soldier. But wait a minute, he had leprosy. 
So right here in this first sentence, you just have to like kind of, we have to put ourselves in sort of this, you know, early, early Jewish reader. This brilliant storyteller here, he just loads this with all sorts of tension right here in this story, in the first verse. He's an Ishgadol, but he has leprosy, which just, it's not just like, well, he had a little bad skin condition. If you're in Jewish culture, this was a sign of curse, like you were cursed for some reason, like you were an outcast. You were unclean to even be a part of society. You know, the, you know Monty Python, when they scream, unclean, unclean, that was because they had leprosy. They couldn't even like be around other people. And so there's sort of a paradox happening in this opening scene. Like, wait, 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 you've got this, you know, this ish gadol, but he has leprosy. And in, in, in the Hebrew, that would have been a masora. So it's like this sort of outcast masora, but he's an ish gadol general. You can't be both of those things. So it says in verse two, now bands from Aram had gone out, had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served a Naaman wife. So Aram's soldiers, you know, had kind of done a cross-border raid one day, and they captured this Israel, Israeli girl who's now a slave in Naaman's home. And she said to her mistress, if only my master, this Naaman, would see the prophet who is in Samaria. That's another word for Israel, Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. It says, Naaman went to his master, that's the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. And skip down. So Naaman left, taken with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of clothing. So he is going with like all of this booty. Now, another little bit of background. The God of Israel is Yahweh, right? Yahweh. The God of Aram is this God named Ramon. Ramon is always pictured as this sort of like big, hulking. Uh, Ramon was known as the thunder god. He evolved into Zeus in the Greek, uh, when the Greeks came around. Um, he's always pictured as very like strong and sort of violent. He's always associated with bulls, which is why he's got the horns. Um, so, and the king of Aram, his title was Ben-Hadad, which is, which is another way of saying son of Ramon. Son of Ramon. So basically, the king was known as son of God in their language. Now, of course, Israel has a different God, Yahweh. So we have these two different countries, two different kings. They each have their own God. And Naaman and his king say, apparently, Ramon can't do anything about your leprosy. So the king says, go check out the God of Israel. See how he does. And so Naaman, General Naaman, sets out west. We'll skip down to verse 9. It says, so Naaman went with his horses and chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now here the writer is given this really brilliant detail here with all the, the horses and the chariots and all that. This, is the, this isn't just like, you know, a couple of horses. This is the main weapons of war of the time. So this is like showing up with your aircraft carrier and your tank at the door of the prophet who probably lives in a very simple little hut, little house, you know, tiny one room kind of thing. And here is this general from the country you're at war with, like standing there. Um, and so, so, yeah. And so, uh, here we go. See, I've lost my place. Here we go. Okay, so this would actually have been kind of humorous to the readers of the, of the day. You know, just the scene. This little house where the little prophet lives and the guy with all of his aircraft carriers and tanks. Okay, and it says, Elisha sent uh, a messenger. So that's weird. Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sent a messenger to say to him, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, that's the river, Jordan River, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. So Elisha doesn't even go and talk to him. 
He's like being all like cool and aloof like Yoda here, right? He's not impressed with Naaman. He's like, oh, I mean, there's an Ishkadol at the door and Elisha doesn't even go meet him. And it says, Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus. I mean, how many of us have longed to be there, right? Farpar. Better than all the waters of Israel. I've never heard of Farpar. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. So Naaman is furious here, right? He is an Ishgadol, and he's waiting, and this guy won't even come out and talk to me, right? He tells me to go wash in the dirty, stinking, filthy waters of the Jordan River. The Jordan River is like famously this very muddy thing. It's not fed by a mountain spring. It's fed by the Sea of Galilee, which is a lake. So it's basically getting the runoff from the lake. It's a very muddy, terrible, terrible thing to, to go tell this important person to go, to go bathe in this thing. And he's thinking, I've got these rivers back home. Back in Syria, I've got rivers that are like crystal clear coming out of the mountains. I mean, surely they have more magical powers than the Jordan does. And notice also, he's like, I thought he would wave his hand over the spot and cure me of the leprosy. Where's the big, where's the big, you know, like ritual here? Where's the elaborate ceremony that it's going to cure me? I thought there was going to be some pomp and some circumstance here. You know, I thought the man of God would come out and recognize who I was. There'd be some singing, some fire. He'd stretch out his hands and like Benny Hinn me and I'd fly across, right? That's a verb. And like he would do that. And it would be like impressive and there would be like singing and trumpets or something. Where's the show? He's offended. He's offended because he wants something bitter, bigger. He wants something more showy that reflects his, his self-importance. Now let's just reflect on this for a second. I mean, how many times on a Sunday morning do we leave church and, and maybe miss what God had in store for us here. Because we didn't get, you know, the big public call out, you know, or, or Miss Pat didn't come up this morning and share, so I don't, I don't even know if the Holy Spirit was there, you know, uh, or, or the, you know, the visiting minister, he didn't, he didn't call me out and say, you, stand up. He didn't do that, you know, like I, I bet Ivan Tate will do that next week, but there's going to be some of us he doesn't call on. And we walk away and we think, where, where was the thing? Where was, the big, where was the big show, right? The huge prayer. I didn't feel the goosebumps during that song. That song didn't do anything for me. I don't even, I don't even know if God was there, right? And, and we had the answer to our prayer right in front of us, just waiting for us to obey the simple thing. My, my experience has been that some of my greatest you know, growth, those periods of growth that I have as a Christian, it, it comes from the hundreds of little decisions that I make every day. Just the little decisions. And, and what I want to do is the, the big thing. I, I kind of want to ignore all those things and just do the one big impressive thing for God and him to be really impressed with that. You know, and, and the thing, I want the big, giant, impressive demonstration. I want God to come down, show me a little bit of recognition for some great things I've done. And yet the truth is that we, we grow, the ways that we grow are just by doing the next right thing in the, in the thousands of little ways that God puts before us. And this is why pride never gets us anywhere. 
It's why people who have an overinflated sense of themselves, sometimes they have the most difficulty getting the kingdom of God, right? Because it's always about, I'm telling you, it's, it's always about humbling. It's always about more humbling. It's always about submitting. It's about doing the simple task that's right in front of us. It's often about serving others. It's about serving others that, that we are blessed and we develop the sense of how everything should be. And God says, just go wash in the Jordan and nobody's gonna be there to see it. There's not gonna be any cameras, paparazzi or anything. Just go wash in the, wash in the Jordan. That's what you need to do next. And I know you're some great general. I know you're an Ishkadol. But he says, can you do just this simple thing? Can you do that? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I had a chance to go on this really cool little prayer retreat. And it was up in Colorado. And it was this beautiful place up in the mountains, like the, where the, like the Salvation Army camp. And uh, just this beautiful place. And there was a whole bunch of other people there. And they were all, you know, fellow believers. And they're all there praying and just encouraging one another and confessing. And I got to tell you, it was just, it was really cool because it was like 120 degrees here. You remember like three weeks ago? And we got there and it was like 48 in the morning. Oh my goodness. I just felt so guilty a little bit, but not really. <laughs> And I was like, ah, oh, this is so good. And so I remember my first morning there, I get up like extra early. And in fact, like the first morning I get up to extra because I just wanted to like pray. And I get up and like, you know, it's still kind of like dark and misty. And I'm in the mountains and like there's this elk that walked out. I even shot a picture to my dad who was in Africa at the time. He's seeing like impressive animals. But I'm like, look, it's an elk. Um, uh, you know, so I just, oh, I've just like been blessed by this elk. And then there's this like this little pond and it's like this beautiful little pond. And that's, I'm walking over to this pond and I'm praying to the Lord and I just feel it's like presence everywhere and it's beautiful, it's 48 degrees. And like there's the mountains are right there. It's still kind of dark and the light's just barely coming through the peaks and I'm just, I'm having this wonderful moment. And then the next morning I do the same thing. I like get up extra early. I get up and I'm kind of walking around, kind of just doing some prayers before the, you know, before all the little gatherings happen with everybody and just having these wonderful moments. I'm like, ah. Spirit of the Lord is in this place, right? Uh, and taking more pictures of the pond. I have like thousand pictures of the same stupid pond. I don't know, why, why do you do that? You just think like, I need a new picture of the pond. And, um, you know, but yeah, it was just like a beautiful time. You know, you just, it's, those are very, you know, rare times to just get that moment where you kind of, you know, you don't have the kids and all this kind of stuff and you're just getting to be alone with God. A few days later, I fly home. I'm so happy to be home, see my wife. Um, who's ready for me to take over now because she's been with the kids. And uh, Saturday morning, really interesting. So Saturday morning, I wake up and <laughs> I remember being so surprised at how, what a struggle it was to convince myself to get up and go pray, right? Before all the kids are awake, to go into the, the kitchen, you know, the back where the back porch is and, and go do some praying, some praying back there. And it's, you know, but, but I'm like, well, you know, I mean, where's the mountains? Where's the, where's, it's, it's already 101 outside, you know, that Saturday morning. It's just like, ugh. And it, it was amazing. And I had to be reminded, these are the kind of moments that define us. You know, not your cool little mountain moment. These are the moments that define us on a Saturday morning. What we do, not when all the stars are aligned and, and the setting is perfect and we have the chance to be like impressive in front of other people or, you know, some iconic scene, you know, with the sunlight peeking through the mountains. 
No, it's, it's when the kids are grumbling and, and the trash needs taken out and the bills need paying and, and the guy driving in front of me cuts me off. And those, what we do in those hundreds of moments when we're simply be invite, being invited by God to be like Christ, to represent his kingdom in those hundreds of moments of normal life, of real life, right? Will I simply do the next right thing when nobody's looking, when it doesn't feel super special? Those are the moments that add up to define the kind of people that we are. Notice what happens. Uh, Naaman's, yeah, Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So Naaman, he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times in that dirty, filthy river as the man of God told him to do. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Okay. I sort of object to this metaphor a little bit. The two young boys that I raised were not known for being especially clean. So <laughs> it, it meant something to them that it just does not mean to me, but I, I, I'll take his word for it. His flesh has been renewed. When I was talking to Melissa a little bit about this before the, the service, she always gives me good advice because I like run this by her and she's like, oh, okay, sets me straight. And she... It was, it, she was reminding me, what makes this so powerful is that this wasn't a formula. This is not a formula that we follow. We don't, you know, the answer to all of our problems is not to go dip seven times. It wasn't about the formula. It was about obedience. It was about surrender. Will he surrender? Then, watch what happens. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, right? And he's like, load the tanks, we're going back. And he stood before him, so now Elisha will see him. And said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Now this is huge. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. This is unbelievable for this to happen in this time in world history, right? Because see, in the ancient Near East, we've talked a little bit about this before. The ancient Near East, they believed in what was known as like localized deities. Localized deities. Simply meaning, there's a god or a deity for each country or region. That's just what they assumed. So if you're in Aram, there's the god, you know, there's Ramon. He's the god of Aram. There's the god of Lebanon. There's the god of Moab, of Egypt, of the Philistines, and of Israel, you know, Yahweh's, oh yeah, that's, that's Yahweh country over there. If you go there, that's Yahweh country. So there's this God in each area. And when you go to a region, the question you would ask at the border when you're showing your, you know, your passport, and they're like, why are you here? And you would say, so what's the God over here? And they would tell you, and, you would, and then what you would do is you would go in and you would make sacrifices to that God, you know, so that he would bless you while you're in that region. And if you went to another region, you'd do the same thing. That was just the way it was. That's just what you, what, everybody in the world thought this way, that there's a God for each region of the world. It's the dominant way of understanding things. And so when Naaman has this epiphany and says, now I know that this God is the God of everyone. This is a moment of profound spiritual like enlightenment here. He, this is 20 clicks forward in thinking. It, we, 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 it's hard for us to comprehend the leap that Naaman is making. 
I want to show you something that happens later in the same place. Turn to John chapter 4. It's the story of Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting. When you're reading the stories of Jesus, one thing you want to often ask yourself, because the writers put these details in there for a reason. Uh, They put them on purpose. If the writer specifically mentions the place, the first thing you ask as a student of Scripture is what else significant happened in this place? So the story of Naaman and Elisha occurs in this place called Samaria. We jump roughly 900 years into the future. We see Jesus talking to a a woman in a place called Samaria. (laughs) So Jesus happens to be walking through this region. He comes across this lady who's drawing water from a well. He strikes up this conversation. It's a beautiful story. And he, he just starts like reading her mail, right? He's just like saying all this stuff about her, telling her stuff he couldn't possibly have known. And she gets a little weirded out. And she says, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. So, our story in 2 Kings is about a prophet, Elisha, and an outsider in Samaria. Here we have Jesus being called a prophet, talking to this spiritual outsider in Samaria. And the lady goes on, she says, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. So again... The story about Naaman is this idea that there's this God who's worshipped here, and there's this God who's worshipped over there, and this growing understanding that, wait a minute, there is one true God to be worshipped everywhere by everyone. And at the same place, we see Jesus being called a prophet in Samaria, having a discussion about whether God is worshipped here or here. Mm Mm-hmm. And Jesus, he, tell, he replies to her, he says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship, which you don't even know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So Jesus encounters this woman who's kind of interested in having this theological debate, really, you know, about whether God is worshiped in this place or that place. And Jesus says, no, 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 the moment has arrived when God can be worshiped everywhere. Essentially what Jesus is getting at is, no, 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 all space is sacred. All space is sacred. This is a revolutionary idea to these people. Right? If you're taking notes, this is central to, what, to, to, to understanding what Jesus is, is dealing with here. And so it's not that, like, well, God is at the church service, but he isn't in the school classroom. Or God is in the prayer meeting, but he's not in the boardroom, right? Or, you know, God's by the mountain lake with the sunlight peeking through the peaks, but he's not in the carpool line on Monday, No, no, all space is sacred, all space. And and this woman is caught up in, well, is God here or here? And Jesus is going, yep, right? Well, well, is God worshiped over here or is he worshiped over here? And Jesus is like, now you're getting it, right? And this thing that's blowing Naaman's mind, he has this moment and realizes, wait, God isn't just the God of these people, There is a God who is God of everyone, and that includes me, right? And so Naaman's moving from this idea of localized deities to this universal God whom everybody can know. And this is the revelation Jesus 
is laying down for this woman and he's laying it down for us that God is just as present when you're doing your laundry as when you're on a mission trip. He's just as present, which is good news for us, right? All space is sacred. Jesus says it's not about where you are, it's more about what you're aware of. Are your eyes open? What's happening in your heart? Are you awake to the God who is here and now? Okay, so the Naaman says this. We'll look back at our story in 2 Kings. So he's just had this like incredible moment. Like, you know, I mean, just this huge spiritual. Oh, he's made this huge leap forward. He's so grateful for what's happening. It says that he offers the prophet Elisha like gifts and money and Elisha refuses. And so Naaman says, well, if you'll not, if you're not going to accept all that, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant. will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. So, so Naaman says, I've been healed. I'm so excited. I'm so grateful. So can I have some dirt? <laughs> and we all saw that coming, right? You're probably like, he's going to do the dirt thing, I bet. Right? No. Why is he asking for two mules of dirt? Because it was believed that the soil of a particular land was directly connected to the deity of that land. Okay? So Naaman, he's about to go home. I mean, he's leaving Israel. He's going back to Aram. He's been healed by God. He has this great revelation that this is the God Right? And he wants to take some of the soil of Israel back home with him so he can offer sacrifices to this God back home in Aram. He wants to take the dirt home. He's going to, you know, I can just imagine. He's imagining, I'm going to go home and I'm going to pour it in my backyard. I got this little space. I got this tree. I'm going to pour some of the dirt back there. And whenever I want to worship God, I'm going to go and stand on that dirt so that God of Israel can hear me because I'll be on his dirt. Now, we just saw him, like, make this huge leap forward in understanding, right? That transcendent moment. And can I have some dirt? Because obviously, that's, you know, the, God can only be worshipped um, standing on his soil. So, so, question. Is Naaman starting to un- get, understand some things? Yeah, right? Does he get it all? No, because he's so different from us, right? He gets the larger idea about God, but some of the practices, like how this works, he's kind of stuck in the old assumptions, right? And then he adds this line. This is so beautiful. He says, but may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master, he's talking about the king, you know, the the son of Ramon, tomorrow morning when I go home to work, when he enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm, I'll have to bow down there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. My, my heart is just like so warm towards this guy. He says, here's the dealio. I got to go back to work, right? I've been healed. I'm so excited. I'm taking my dirt, which I really appreciate. But I got to go back to work. And I work for the king, Right? And this is just the job. I, I got, I'm his right-hand man. And, and, you know, first thing he likes to do when we go to work in the morning, the king likes to go into the temple of Ramon. He bows down and worships. And when he bows, I got to bow too. So please forgive me because this is what I'm headed back into. Now, how does Elisha respond? Does Elisha say, no way, dude. 
you got to take a stand, man, right? Turn or burn. you got to make a decision right now, right? If you don't take a stand for something, you'll fall for any, you know, you, here, i got a bumper sticker. This is like no compromise, 316. This is like what you got to do because, you know, you can't be some kind of spineless infidel after what? No. What does Elisha say? Go in peace. Wait, wait, wait. So Naaman has just said that he's going to have to head back into a situation in the temple of Ramon. Naaman's life just got real complicated. And what Elisha doesn't say is, well, well you need to stay here then, right? You got to get out of that situation. You stay with us. Join the God squad right, right here. No, no, no. He says, go in peace. I find that very interesting. And this word peace, as we've studied many times in here, is this, is this word shalom. It's not a throwaway word. Shalom. The reason why a prophet would pronounce shalom over you is because shalom means covenant. It means relationship with God. It means everything between you and God is good. Y'all are clean. Y'all are clear. You have God's favor and his blessing. And Naaman's worried. He's like, I I might have to go in there and bow down at the Temple of Ramon. It's part of my job. And Elisha says, go in the peace and the blessing of God. God is with you, right? He is, you are carrying him back with you. He's going with you. So I wonder how many of you this morning, you work in the Temple of Ramon. Let's say you're in business or, you know, or you're a lawyer or you're a waiter or whatever it is you do. You're a teacher, you're a student. And every day you step foot in the temple of Ramon. Every day you live with a whole bunch of difficult decisions and they come one after the other. How do you balance your job and your walk with Christ? And you ask yourself that. If, if, if you're serious of Christ, no doubt, you ask yourself these questions. How do you balance being a witness for Christ with your day-to-day duties? Maybe you've got a boss on who, you know, he insists on doing whatever it takes to make the sale or something like that. Or you're a student in school and, and you are surrounded by people and language and a culture that makes you feel like you're on an alien planet. And as a Christian, you're trying to sort through how to be a follower of Christ in a very messy world. And as a follower of Christ, things get sticky fast. Am I right? Maybe you live in a household where people around you believe vastly different things than you, right? Maybe they joke in ways they don't, that you don't like. Maybe they worship in ways you don't like. Maybe they belittle you for worshiping God or they pressure you in ways that you don't like. Maybe you've got a friend who who's making decisions. That friend who's just like making those little life choices that they're living in a relationship or something that you know is not best for them. And you want to be kind of the good, supportive, Jesus-y friend, you know? But do you condone this with silence or do you like speak up and risk alienating these people around you? How many of you know life can get super ambiguous and fuzzy quite quickly? Do you agree? Well, that's the, we're just being honest. How many of you know what the Temple of Ramon looks like because it's the real world you find yourself in every week? And you're trying to figure out how to love and bond with people, and yet there's stuff you just can't have anything to do with. And so you're trying to be this living witness for Christ, and you don't want to scare them away. 
And yeah, you're also, maybe just by being there, you're wondering if you're sending the wrong message. And sometimes, sometimes we're also told this, this kind of nice, pretty idea. It's a, it's a pretty lie, uh, honestly, that, it, well, if you just follow Jesus, everything becomes simple. Follow Jesus and everything becomes clear. You'll, know the, all, you'll always know the right thing to do. Sometimes following Jesus means things just got way, way more complicated. Some of you who work in the Temple of Vermont can tell me. That's for sure. And so, you know, we do each other a disservice if we're not honest with each other about this, and about the realities of Christian life, right? We want it to be black and white. We want it to be that way, but we step out the door and it is like 113 shades of gray. And it's not because we've compromised. It's not because, you know, you're failing to take a stand. No, it is because, it's not because you've rejected the scriptures. It is because you are taking them seriously. And we're even in the temple of Ramon to begin with, which is where God wants you. Because how is the king of Aram going to hear about Yahweh unless somebody tells him? Amen. And who's going to tell him? Naaman. How are people going to know about God? You, right? you, me. That's what it means to be a Christian. We come to church. We love this. We love this moment. This is our. This is our moment by the pond with the sun peeking through the mountains right here. This is wonderful, right? We come here, but then what do we do? We march out into the temple of Ramon because that is where God has placed you, right? And at times it's going to be hard and complicated and ambiguous about what exactly you're supposed to do. It's why community is so important to have this community of brothers and sisters that you could be like, oh, I need some prayer right now. I need some help. I need some guidance. Give me some wisdom, right? This is how God works in the world. I want to show you one other thing and then we'll wrap it up. Over in Mark chapter 5. Um, I just want those of you today and, and you... Maybe you often hear sermons and you think to yourself, well, that's nice, but you should see what I have to live in. You should, you should see my home situation or you should see the place I work. And some of us hear you know, Bible verses quoted and they sound really wonderful and we think, well, that's nice, but you should see the kind of decisions, the kind of complexity I have to face, the awkward situations I am in every day that I get put in at business, at school, in the carpool, raising kids, raising other people's kids if you're a teacher, Right? In Mark chapter 5, Jesus, he arrives in this non-Jewish area um, across the sea. And so they, these people haven't heard any of the Jewish stories. Uh, they don't know the Torah. They don't know about the Sabbath or anything like that. They haven't heard anything. And the local tourism board sends out this demon-possessed man uh, to greet Jesus. And the naked, uh, the man, they says that he's naked and he's raving. He's homeless. They try to like bind him with chains and he keeps breaking them. He lives in a graveyard. It's a very, very sad situation. And Jesus arrives and long story short, he completely heals the man. Completely restores him. The very next scene, it says that uh, we find the man dressed and sitting in his right mind. Ah, it's just this beautiful thing. Jesus restores him to peace, to shalom, to harmony, right? And then it says Jesus is getting ready to leave the region. What happens? It says Jesus is getting in the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed, we never even learn his name, but we know he, he had been healed of much. It says that he begged to go with him. 
I mean, we can imagine why. If Jesus did not let him, but instead he said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus says, go. Here's your next step. Go. He doesn't send him off with a, you know, a little stack of pamphlets to like memorize. He doesn't give him like a pocket New Testament plus Psalms to like, you know, be able to read through. He doesn't connect him with a really good church. You know, make sure you get, he doesn't give him any of this stuff. He, he doesn't tell him you should spend about four years in seminary first to make sure you've got all your doctrines just right. No, no. He says, just go, just go tell your story. Tell your story. Tell your story. Tell them about the mercy that God has had on you. The, um, last week we talked about, we, we mentioned the Ten Commandments, you know, those first two commandments. Don't have any other gods. Don't make an idol. Well, the very third commandment, I was just thinking about this this morning. The very third commandment is, is what? Uh, don't, don't take his name. Don't misuse his name. Um, some, some versions say don't take it in vain, don't take his name in vain or something like that. The actual Hebrew of that word is don't carry his name badly. We carry his name. The idea, see the idea that God had for Israel, those first, the, the, the nation of Israel when he delivered them from slavery, he wanted them originally to be the people who represented him to the world. They were gonna be like a kingdom of priests who represented God to the world, showed the world what God is like. They failed miserably at this. But that was the goal, for them to carry his name into the world. How are the, how are the people in Aram, how are the, the folks in the temple of Ramon gonna know that God is love? You, right? You. This gathering, this is our worship service, yes, but this gathering is also more like a mission briefing, right? We're getting, our, we're getting the plan. We're getting our mission briefing. The body of Christ, you the ministers. Not, there's not one minister. There's a whole room of ministers, and we're about to go head out to where ministry happens, where the real ministry happens, right? Out there on Monday morning. That's where the ministry really happens. And so we gather here to encourage one another, to remind ourselves of what we're doing, and then we go. You are how the people, how the people out there will hear about God's love, of his mercies. How the king of Aram is gonna hear his name and is gonna come into his palace, right, that next day, and the king's gonna say, my goodness, name it. You have skin like a young boy. (laughs) What brand of moisturizer are you using? And Naaman is going to say, let me tell you the story of the God of Israel. That's our job. And sometimes we make spirituality really complex. And we like, you have to get all of this right. I got to know everything. I gotta, and you have to know all of this. You have to get the whole dirt thing, you know, make sure you have enough of that. And then you got to have your systematic theology just right before you try to witness to anybody because they may ask a question. But Naaman, I mean, he kind of gets some of it, but he's not getting the whole thing. And Elisha sends him back with the blessing of peace to testify of the God who is the God. And yet Naaman's from Aram. He's not Jewish. He hasn't read any Torah. He doesn't actually know any of the details. The demoniac, 
that Jesus heals. He's sent back to his hometown just to testify of God's goodness. But this guy has no idea of the details. He, he couldn't explain Judeo-Christian eschatology if his life depended on it. He couldn't do it. So, which raises the question for me, what's the next right thing? What's the next right thing? What's the next step for Naaman? Return home. Go in peace. Just go back. Just go back. Go in peace. Tell the king, go into the temple of Ramon, because you're bringing God with you. You'll figure it out as you go. Just do the next right thing. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to know it all because it's not about knowing the formula, the seven times you got to dip. That's really not what it's about. It is about surrendering to faith, to trust, just doing what God says next and trusting he'll be there. And he'll show you the next step, the next right step. God says, do the next thing. Carry your story of this God with you because he is going with you. God is going with you in the morning. Wherever it is you got to go or wherever you work or go to school or whatever it is, he's going with you. God is not squeamish. He doesn't stand outside and go, I'm going to wait out here. No, he's already there, in fact. He, believe it or not. And that, you know, it feels like a hellhole there. Well, did you know God's already there? He's already there. He's just waiting for you to come on so we all can partner together, Right? He is not scared or squeamish of the real world. He does not have white gloves. He's afraid to get dirty. Amen. Right? Why? Because this is the world he not only created, but he came and covered himself in the dust of so that he could show his love to this world. He's not afraid of the dirt. Tomorrow morning, you're heading back into whatever place it is, and that will provide you with endless choices. Maybe you'll make some of the right ones. You might stumble. But you're going to have all these choices where you feel like you're the only one, where they don't get it, where they don't understand. These people don't get it. It's going to be hard. It's going to be complicated. And as a follower of Jesus, on the fly, you got to make hundreds of choices. And maybe right now, the lesson for today, for you, is simply that God says, go. Go in peace. Amen. And maybe you've been living with this tension for a while that, like, it shouldn't be this complicated, Right? I was told it wouldn't be, I was told everything would be simple. And maybe you're actually in the right place because you are mixing it up in the temple of Vermont and that is what Jesus has for you right now. It may not be forever. He might tell you to move, but he'll tell you that when it's time, right? And so maybe you've been taught that everything's supposed to be black and white, that Jesus is supposed to bring this great clarity. And some of us, we need to convert, I think, from clarity to trust, Trust, trust. Jesus promises when we trust him, he'll lead us in that next right step. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Will you bow your heads with me? Hallelujah. Father God, uh, Lord, we want to be the kind of people that, that carry your name well, that represent you well in this world, Lord God. And I can think of, in this room, there's all these places my brothers and sisters are going to head into today or this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow. Lord God, where people desperately need to know that you love them, that you're alive, that you're a well, that, that you're well, that you're, you're real, Lord God. I please, Lord God, I ask you to just give us tremendous strength, Lord. Give us the wisdom and the perseverance that we need, the daily bread that we need to be the kinds of people who show the world around us what you're like. 
that reveal your, your compassion, that you're a God who is just and kind and forgiving and healing and loving. God, I, I pray for all of those who wonder why the world they're working in, why it, it feels so hard, Lord God. Maybe they're, why they're living, they're wondering why they're living where they're living and teaching where they're teaching, studying where they're studying, Lord God. And Lord, please remind us, you have us right where we are for a reason. Go with us, Lord God. Give us the courage, the trust in you, Father. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus who forgives us and cleans us and guides us and leads us into all truth. All the people of God said, amen, amen. Well, stand to your feet as our prayer partners are coming forward. If there's anything that we can pray with you about, we invite you to come forward, let us pray with you, agree with you in faith. Whatever it is going on in your life, you need healing, you need restoration, you need some guidance. Maybe you need, I just need God to show me kind of what that next step is. What's that next step? I'm kind of in this weird, muddy situation. And, and he can bring the, that, that guidance, that next step, that show you that next step. If you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time today, what a great time to do it. And, and you don't have to know it all. You don't have to have it all figured out. You may come to him with all these questions and he doesn't blame you for the questions. He just says, hey, let's have a relationship. We'll work on all those things as we go along. You can say yes to Jesus today and come forward and let these guys pray with you. Amen. May, may you, like Damon, have the humility to accept the simple ways that God wants to reveal himself to you. And may you trust enough in the Lord to take the next right step. And may you go and testify of his mercy to a world that desperately needs it. Amen. Grace and peace be with you.